Well, I think one of the most influential books to help us understand our culture at large uh, is the 1984 work by sociologist Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a pretty thin book. Uh, if you've never read it, um, I'm sure the libraries around the area would have it. I have a copy somewhere. I've got to find it if you're interested in reading it. But um, really influential book. In it, he describes our culture's shift from a typographic culture, which is a culture that predominantly uses print as a medium. Right? The, there was this huge shift with the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg, and that kind of brought with it uh, a, an entire shift in culture. And he, he said in back in 1984 that we were on the precipice of another one of these cultural shifts. But this time, the predominant medium for our culture is entertainment. And he says that this shift has inhibited us from processing, fully processing subject matter that we are engaged with. He gives the example of your local six o'clock news. You have story after story that are directed towards you in rapid fire segments. And before you've fully digested the first story, they're already on to something different. Right, just last week, you may have heard about the advisory water boil for the city of Pittsburgh then turning to the fatal shooting of McKeesport officer Sean Slugnansky, followed by the score of the latest Penguins game. It's impossible to fully process the emotions that come, especially with some of those tragic stories before your mind has already been shifted to celebrating the Penn's win or lamenting uh, blowout loss. We've been conditioned to crave superficial entertainment to keep our minds engaged. And this, coupled with what I think many would say is an epidemic of loneliness in our society, has driven us to be a people who cannot sit still, that need constant stimulation. Our fear of being alone drives us to noise, to distraction, to crowds, our smartphones. We don't want to be alone, and we don't want to be bored. It's like the sin of our, our you know, the, the, the life that we want to avoid is boredom. You know, over the summer, uh, school's out of session, and, you know, you could probably guess if you've got kids of your own how many times I hear my kids say, I'm bored, because they're restless. They don't know how to be alone. They don't know how to entertain themselves, and for that matter, entertain themselves without a screen of some sort in front of them. And, and the kids aren't the only ones, let's be honest. I'm not sure where I first heard it, but I'll often chide my kids with the quote, you know, only boring people are bored. You know, the, the, the famous French philosopher, uh, excuse me, mathematician, he was a mathematician, Blaise Pascal, once said that all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think in our generation, some few centuries later, we can add the asterisk of sit alone in our room without our smartphones, because many of us could sit alone in a room with our smartphones for uh, in, in infinite periods of time. We have a problem with quiet. We have a problem with loneliness in our culture. And so this morning, I want to look at the spiritual discipline that is the remedy for this in our lives, the practice of solitude. Just so you know, this is probably of the disciplines that we'll be looking at, the one that I struggle with the most. Um, and so I'm definitely standing up here as a student. I'm not a teacher. I've not mastered any of this. And so I'm grateful for contemplative voices like Richard Foster to draw us deeper into ourselves, draw us deeper to God, to slow down, 
to learn to be quiet so that we can better hear the voice of the Lord. Foster described solitude this way, that loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So let's take a look together at what it means to be filled by God in these times of quiet and waiting. So I want to walk through a couple of subjects. So first I want to briefly glimpse this practice of solitude as done by Jesus. What can we learn of solitude from his experience? Then we will look at silence. Now, this message is about solitude, but you cannot have solitude without the practice of silence. So we'll take a, a, a quick look at silence. And then we'll look at solitude, the act of solitude, and an experience that St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. And then lastly, as I've been trying to do this series, we'll try to give a few concrete examples, concrete ways to put this discipline in practice. So let's start by looking at the experience of Jesus. Now, you don't have to read the Gospels very long before you realize that Jesus quite often withdrew to remote places to pray, to be with his Father. Sometimes there were reasons for his retreat. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, describes Jesus going to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This occurs on the heels of his baptism where God broke open the heavens, affirming the identity of Jesus as the Son who was well-loved. And from there, Jesus is commissioned. He's sent out to a season of solitude and testing. Luke 6, 12 through 16, describes the calling of the 12 disciples. But before Jesus called them, he went out on the mountain to pray at night. So we see before making a significant decision, Jesus is retreating. When Jesus was stressed, he retreated. Matthew 26, 36 to 46 describes the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, knowing that the cross was looming before him, needs to be reaffirmed that this is the plan that he and the Father had put together before the foundation of time itself. And so Jesus goes before God in prayer and asks, like, if there's any other way to take that cup from him. But through solitude, through prayer, he confirms the plan and receives the courage necessary to remain steadfast in the face of the horrific persecution he was about to face. But sometimes for Jesus, it was just the regular rhythms of stepping away from the crowd, connecting with and to hear God. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, depicts Jesus getting up early in the morning, just going to a desolate place to pray. You you see Jesus moving from city to city, performing miracles, casting out demons, and he would often go to recharge his batteries to ensure that he was on the path set before him by God. And so if this was true in Jesus' day, how much more so in our age of distraction do we really need to be intentional about cultivating time to reconnect with God, to reorient our path in line with his calling? And so for us, to put the practice of solitude in our toolboxes, we must first learn the discipline of silence because silence is required for solitude. Silence is not just the absence of speech, but it is a a posture of listening. It's always been linked with these contemplative traditions because it is under silence and solitude that we learn when to speak and when to be quiet. It's a skill that many of us need to develop, especially for those of us that are verbal processors. It might not come naturally. 
You know, Proverbs 25.11 reminds us of the power of speech. It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. There's preciousness to the uh, a word that is the right word at the right time. And there's discernment that goes into that. Silence can help teach us that. Remember, these, these disciplines, as we study them, are about transformation of our hearts. They're not just rules for us to follow. And so, for example, you could think, I'm going to practice silence, and so I'm not going to say a word for the next 12 hours. There might be something that's valuable or helpful in that, but how does that arbitrary amount of time help you? It isn't just the absence of speech, but silence has more to do with us learning to control our tongues. This is the whole first half of James chapter 3 talks about this, right? It's instructional to the damaging nature that our speech can be that if our tongues are left unchecked, he compares our tongues to a small fire that sets the entire forest ablaze, right? That we use our tongues for blessing, but then we turn right around and we use them to manipulate others. We use them to gossip. We use them to bully. Thomas Akempis once said, it is easier to be silent altogether than to speak with moderation. Think about it. He said, it's easier to be silent altogether than to speak with moderation. And so silence helps us to discern when it's right to speak and when it's the right time to keep quiet. So I'm going to give you an example of Peter in the midst of the transfiguration. This is Matthew 17, 1 to 4. I'm going to read it for you. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. So this is the kind of the Jesus had his 12 disciples, but he had kind of an inner circle of, of three, of Peter, James, and John. And so they, they got some, some special experiences that the other nine didn't receive. And verse 2 says, And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Mark says that his clothes became whiter than any launderer could, could make them. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, Jesus. So Peter, James, and John have this unique experience. The veil of Jesus' humanity was temporarily lifted, and they see him surrounded in glory that was due to the Son. Then you have two of these ancient bastions of faith, both Elijah and Moses, show up to have a chat with Jesus. And what we're going to see in the next verse is Peter promptly inserts his foot in his mouth. Verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now this passage, the way that the English, the ESV translate it doesn't really get at what's going on in the Greek because the Greek says that answering them, Peter said, let me build some tents for you. Peter is speaking out of turn. He butts in on their conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and answers when no, no one's addressing him. No one's talking to Peter, but he answers nonetheless. It was a foolish use of speech in that moment. Instead of being awestruck by the grandeur of what was happening, he felt the need to interject something. Maybe he wasn't comfortable with the, you know, being left out of the conversation. I don't know. We don't know what it is, but he definitely was not part of a conversation and made himself a part of that conversation. Now, I think this is a lesson for us because I'm willing to bet we do this all the time. I know I do this all the time. 
Maybe you're one of those people who listens. Someone is sharing a story of what happened in their life and, you know, you respond with your own experience. You know, you want to tell a story that you've, you've done and, you know, your goal is to try to, like, build rapport, but it just comes across as, like, one-upsmanship. You know, like, that's a good story, but wait, wait do you hear mine. Or you use your words to try to garner pity or justify yourself. You know, maybe, you know, you're in school and you finish taking a test and you tell your friends, like, I definitely failed that one. I mean, come on. You probably didn't. Like, maybe you got, like, an 85% on the test, but, like, you didn't fail it. But you say it because you want to fit in, right? You want to gain some, some sympathy from your classmates. You know, one that I know I'm guilty of, I try to be better about this, is I'm guilty of correcting people's grammar. Someone says the car needs washed. The car needs to be washed. I, I don't know. Why do I, why do, I do this? Right? Someone says the word irregardless. I always respond with like, uh, that's not a word. It's actually just regardless. You know? My statements might be true, but are they helpful? Are they compassionate in that moment? Right? We want to be included. We want to be justified. We want to sound smart. And so instead of controlling our tongues, we use our words as a way to exert control of a situation. Richard Foster says, quote, if we are silent, who will take control? God will take control, but we will never let him take control if we do not trust him. So he's saying to reign in the tongue, we need, in order to learn to discern what is better to speak and when it's best to be silent. It requires an inward trust in God. You know, one of the curriculum that the material that I really enjoy going through is something called the gospel-centered life, and it helps us better understand our identity in Christ, that, that God has this overwhelming love for us, that we are accepted, not based on anything that we do, and oftentimes we're accepted in spite of things that we do through Jesus, right? Because it, 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 God for loves us in Jesus that we don't have to keep striving for belonging. We don't have to keep striving for acceptance by our own power. And one of the exercises that they suggest is what they call the tongue exercise, that for a week, don't say anything negative or self-justifying. Now, that, that first part is, I would argue, easier, right? If push comes to shove, you can probably go a week without cussing you could probably go for a week without, you know, making sure that you're not gossiping about your coworkers or your friends. But I don't know, for me, it's that self-justifying one that's really hard. And I'll, I'll circle back to this, because when we get to some concrete examples, I want to flesh that out a little bit more. So I think that's silence. We need to learn silence, when to speak and when to listen. Now, having grappled with the balance of silence, let's turn to solitude. And I, I think that Ultimately, right, or, or solitude is best pursued when we're withdrawn from the busyness of our lives, right? when we pull away from the frenetic activity. But ultimately, solitude is more about a state of mind than an actual place. Right? You, you can find ways to have, you can learn how to have solitude when there are crowds around. As with simplicity that we discussed last week, it's, it's an inward discipline. Right? God has to do some work inside of us that manifests itself then in outward ways. And so the inner discipline of solitude provides us with the freedom to be alone, the freedom to be quiet, the freedom to experience boredom and kind of just be faced with ourselves. 
The goal of solitude is not just to be away from people, but to be in a posture where we can better hear the divine whisper of God. It reminds me, as I was prepping this, it reminded me of a story in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18 tells what I would imagine would have been a high point in Elijah's service to Yahweh. He, he, it, it's a popular verse where uh, you, you have um, kind of this pray-off between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you see fire miraculously come down from heaven with power. You know, I'm sure Elijah was feeling real good in that moment because the nation said, all right, we're going we're gonna to serve Yahweh. We're going to put aside all these, this stuff of Baal. But right on the heels of that success, Elijah is, is uh, threatened by the queen, Jezebel. He gets scared and he runs away and he hides in a cave. So Elijah is going from a high point in ministry to a low point of depression. So God comes near to him and meets with him. And let me read the story. This is 1 Kings 19, 9 to 13. Then he came, Elijah, to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, this is like the question God asks so often. We see it with Adam in the garden. It's not that God doesn't know why Elijah is there, but Elijah needs to come to terms with, what are you doing hiding? Didn't I just show my power that I would care for you, protect you? Elijah responds, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, I don't read it, but at the end of the section, God points out that he's, he, he has some, some poor assumptions. Some of his assumptions are not actually right in that. God said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks but for the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some translations actually say the sound of a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out to stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came the voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah was struggling in his faith. Right? He had seen the visible manifestation of God's goodness and power, but now he's a fugitive on the run by this wicked monarchy. Life didn't seem fair. His faith is wavering. But God's response was not to come in the grandiose displays of power. God wasn't in the hurricane. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the firestorm. It was in the quiet. It was in the sound of silence that Elijah recognized the presence of God. And it was there in the quiet that he was able to receive that divine whisper. I think this is important for us as believers to understand because it is very common for Christians to go through the ups and downs of faith. There are times where we feel like we're on the mountaintop. We see it, and there are times when it, it kind of feels, you know, you don't feel it. You're struggling with faith. In particular, there are seasons with what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. It's an experience where you feel just like God's presence isn't there any, anymore. It's withdrawn. 
In the words of Foster, we may have a sense of dryness, aloneness, even lostness. Like Elijah, we may have had strong glimpses of God's work before, but we find ourselves kind of stuck, right? You're, you're lacking momentum. You're lacking motivation in our faith. You might not understand where God has gone or why we can't feel Him anymore. That's important to recognize that if you find yourself in a season like that, that season of dryness, that season where God feels far away, it's not punishment, but it is for your growth. Now, one caveat to that is this is not the same experience that comes as a result of separation from God because of sin in our lives. That is, like, if you are an intentional, active rebellion against him, If like you know God's called you to something or you know that God has said something is good and you're saying, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway or something is is bad and you say, I'm going to do it anyway, that that does create a rift that exists between uh, us and God. That's not what I'm talking about. But the purpose of the dark night of the soul is to strip away our dependence on the emotional life of faith. It's about building a stronger union between us and God. And it's through these times of solitude and silence that I think we can experience again that divine whisper to hear God. Now, one of the anecdotes that I, that I often use when I'm talking about um, this dark night of the soul is, is the example of a toddler learning to walk. Because, right, when you are a baby, you are utterly dependent on your parents. You cannot get from point A to point B without their assistance. But there comes a time in your development where, like, you need to learn to walk. Like, it's not a good look if you're a teenager and, like, your parents are still carrying you around. So what do your parents do? They put you on the ground. They move away, give you some independence, some space. They allow the freedom for you to take those steps without assistance, watching you fall, perhaps, tumble every now and then. In an effort to increase your physical development, they need to withdraw. They need to step back a bit. And I think that there's something similar that happens quite often in our spiritual lives. Because when we're young in our faith, we rely so much on the emotionalism of faith. God constantly feels near to us and we can sense him even amidst the crowds. Even when we're surrounded by noise, we have this experience of God's presence. But then there comes a time where God pulls back a bit so that we can mature in faith, that we can grow in that spiritual maturity, learn what it means to rely on Him, to seek Him out, even when it seems harder. It's a part of our development. And when we find ourselves in these situations, the knee-jerk reaction is to try to remedy it ourselves, right? Figure it out, kind of like a formula. Why am I feeling this way? What variable do I need to change to go back to the way it was before? What book do I need to read? What podcast do I need to listen to? What church service or worship song do I need to sing to? But in this time, don't get restless, right? Don't just totally change up your rhythms because it's not necessarily going to be a quick fix. It's not something that perhaps by your own effort you you can fix. Instead, you should become silent still and wait because when we are stilled we can hear that sound of silence it's like an anesthesia to us to allow God to do that healing work in our lives I know I shared this at small group a few weeks ago but 
I have a, a good friend of mine named Zach who was in one of these seasons of the dark night of the soul. In fact, that was, he, he went, I, I've never actually read St. John of the Cross, um, just heard him reference, but he went and read St. John's dark night of the soul, dark night of the spirit multiple times because it was the only thing that could make sense. It didn't fix it, it didn't solve his problem, but it was the only thing that could make sense of what he was going through. For 22 months he was in this season and there wasn't anything he could do to fix it himself. Like, he tried changing his work structure. He tried antidepressants. His family moved out of state. It was on God's timeline that the season ceased for him. I think if, we're here, if, we're, if we are to hear God's whisper to us, we need to put ourselves in a position, a posture to be able to hear it. We need, sil- we need to silence that din. We need to silence that noise so we can tune in to what he's communicating. So let's turn to the practical of what it looks like. How can we put some of these rhythms in our lives? Again, to say, I'm not an expert by any means on this. But what does it look like to make solitude and silence a regular part of our daily and weekly rhythms? I, I shared this, I think it was last week, that when I was in seminary, our assignment, we read this book of Foster's Celebration of Discipline, and my, uh, w- our assignment was to go somewhere and spend three hours in solitude and write about it, and I didn't make it. I think I made it an hour and a half, um, and I gave up. And I, I'd like to think that, like, I've, wow, that was really loud, sorry. I, I'd like to think that I've matured a little bit emotionally, that, like, I might do better than 23-year-old Chris did at this, but, but I don't know. That allure of distraction is strong. So how do we do this? So one is this. Start small. Take advantage of the little solitudes in your life that fill the day. Right? Maybe it's the first thing in the morning. Maybe you wake up before anyone else and you've got 15 minutes that you can be quiet. 15 minutes that you can focus on God to continue to orient your day alongside of him. One of the books that I've been reading this year is called The Common Rule by Justin Early. And one of his practices that I've started putting in place is, it's very easy to remember, scripture before screens. Before I turn on my phone and check my email or see who texted me overnight or check Facebook, which is what I typically would do, the first thing I'd go to when I wake up, before I get moving with my day, I pause. And I read my chapter out of our Bible reading plan. It doesn't take long to go through, but before... I open, you know, turn on the floodgates of stimulation of information for the day. I just want to be silent. I just want to read and see what God might be communicating to you. Another option is to use your time alone in other spaces. Maybe you drive to and from work. You know, when you're driving, does the radio need to be on? Do you need that constant sound? Right, even listening to Christian music like K-Love, it can help us to direct our attention, but it's not quiet, right? You're, you'll hear a lot of stuff about God in the music, but it's not the same thing as hearing the voice of God, that divine whisper over the noise. So think of different areas that you can reclaim your time. Use those times to practice solitude and silence. Two is this, find and develop a quiet place for silence and solitude. Like, I don't know, may- maybe you're like Jesus that you literally go to like desolate places in Pittsburgh um, to, to find peace and quiet, to rest and reflect. Uh, you know, may- maybe if you, in your home, 
you, you have space that you can make there. If there's even just like a walk-in closet that you can, you know, put a chair, a place to sit. It could be a space that you can get away from others, that you can focus on God. You know, I know our, our house is not nearly big enough. Like we don't, Putting someone in a closet is like a punishment more than anything else in our house, you know, with these, those small Pittsburgh closets. But what, you know, there are other things you can do. Maybe you designate like a silence blanket that when someone has this blanket, when they are covered in it, it, it signals to everyone else around the house. It's an unspoken way of saying, all right, we need to be quiet. We need to leave them alone. Maybe we leave the room so that they can have a little bit of space in a, in a communal space. So find some quiet places that you can have. Right? And cultivate it. Don't just, don't just make it your living room because there's so much other, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, studies that say doing work, you know, like you shouldn't do your homework in the same bed that you sleep in. Right? You sh- there's a lot of those types of things that you shouldn't do in bed because when it, then it's time to sleep, you, like your mind, you, you might have trouble going to sleep because your mind's in like, all right, I sit here and I know that's homework place. And so you reserve like your bed for sleeping. In the same way, like, don't sit on your just living room couch with everything else closed if you, can, if you can't, um, with that, you know, everything else off because you think, okay, this is where I sit and watch TV. And so your mind's going there. Find some place that might be unique, if you can, that you can cultivate for that. All right, let's keep going. Uh, nope, back to three. Three, uh, be intentional about practicing the gospel-centered life tongue exercise. So for a week, I want to encourage you, don't say anything negative about anyone else. Like, don't correct others. Don't defend or make excuses for yourself. And, and this is really difficult because we are so fearful that we will be misunderstood. Right? Like, I'm not as bad as you think I am right now. It's hard to keep your lips buttoned when someone says something unflattering about you, but it might be true. How much more so when it's a falsehood? Our instincts are for self-preservation, self-protection. But this is really important to let God be your justifier. Maybe someone gets you all wrong. They're not the one who declares your identity. God is the one who declares your identity. So use that as an opportunity to just learn. Again, I'm not saying you do that for the rest of your lives, but use it as a time to see what feelings come out whenever you want to defend yourself and you don't, and you let go of that control and trust God to be the justifier. Learning when to speak and be quiet. Four is this. Take a retreat a few times a year maybe three to four hours at a time to reorient your life goals. You know, maybe you can't get away for a whole weekend, but maybe you can stay late at the office or ask your spouse to watch the kids so that you can have a morning to go somewhere quiet. You know, I'm happy to always, if you can let me know if you want me to open the church up for you to just have some time because I can tell you this place is pretty quiet outside of Sunday morning. You know, use that time to set goals for yourself. Like, what do you want to do in the next year? What kind of person do you want to be? What do you want to accomplish? What do you feel God is calling you to to work on for the next 10 years? How do you see yourself working for God's kingdom? You know, given what I shared to you about my seminary experience, this one's not high on my list. Like, this is the kind of thing that I really struggle with. But I think this can be really helpful. Because you can take 15 minutes here or there, but it's not the same thing as giving this, this devoted time to really phase out those noise to listen to God. Solitude and silence are really countercultural disciplines for us to practice. They're in direct opposition to the, the age of distraction that we live in. But they're essential for us to hear the sound of God's voice. 
Silence and solitude will help us be more compassionate with others in their presence, to be more comfortable with ourselves in their absence. And may we be a people who are able to know when to speak, who know when to keep quiet, and know when to withdraw to hear the voice of our Father. So some things to think about this week. The Gospels display the importance of Jesus' regular retreats. We see it. We can't get away from the fact. Jesus did this all the time. Why do you think we don't put the same priority on this practice of faith? Jesus did it. Why don't, why don't we? Second, as you practice not defending yourself this week, what feelings arise in you? So identify, kind of ascertain what those feelings are. What do those feelings say about your belief that God is the justifier? What does that communicate about how we view our assurance in God? And lastly, I want to encourage you to, to look at your calendar. Like, mark your, don't just say, okay, I'll take that, I'll take a retreat at some point in time. But actually, like, look through your calendar and mark it off for, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole weekend, but a morning or an afternoon or an evening that you can set aside. It's just, just for God, you know? Don't bring your phone. Don't bring, you know, maybe bring some books, bring a notepad, bring a pen or pencil, and just sit there with, with the Lord and seek to hear what he has to say. Join me in prayer. God, you are speaking to us, and there are times where you are shouting, that in the midst of the, not shouting angrily, but, but projecting might be a better word to use, Lord, that in the midst of all the noise, we can hear your voice. But there are times also, Lord, that you speak in a whisper, and in that whisper, it communicates intimacy, it communicates nearness, Lord, we need to be close to you and alone and quiet to hear it. Help us to provide space in our schedule to do this so that we can hear those life-giving words that you would have for us, that you love us, that you're well-pleased with us, that you are calling us to something, that you give us purpose in lives. May this be a practice that we can do like for saints for centuries have participated in. That we cannot be distracted by the noise. We cannot be distracted by just going on with life because life's got plenty of problems. May we learn to focus on you and hear your voice in the quiet. Amen.